I do uh, counseling with couples often. And sometimes it's kind of like being a referee. You know, they're going to come in and then we're going to do a little case study on the last little disagreement that they had, which is usually humorous, especially if I like just had a disagreement with my wife and I came to talk with them. And then I always come home with flowers, don't I, Lois? Every time, proverbially with flowers, yeah. Sometimes I've been counseling with a couple and the lady has said, can you believe what this guy did? Can you believe it? He did this and this and this. And then I think, <laughs> yeah, that's bad. <laughs> and I just did that, you know, and, and she's complaining about it. But what, what's humorous, and I think you'll agree with me, is if you think about, if you, maybe you don't ever have disagreements as a married couple, which is, which is wonderful. I, I hate you. Um, but, um, but if you did, and, and then you, you thought about, like, back over the years, like you had this really bad Donnybrook, a, a disagreement over something. Remember the bad one, you know. And, and then you say, do you remember that? And you go, yeah, that was awful. And then, you, then sometimes you say, do you remember what that was about? And then you have to go, let me think. Uh, what was that about? And a lot of times you can't remember what it was about. I've noticed that it's true in our relationships in the church. Sometimes we have a disagreement maybe years ago with people and maybe you had a sharp disagreement. Maybe you had a division over it. And as the years go by and as the Holy Spirit works in your heart, you think to yourself, now what was that all about anyway? That could have gone either way. I remember once I decided that I was starting a church and I was going to put the, the, the um, quarterly financial report on the wall in the church. I didn't want this to be passed around, okay? It's a dumb idea, but I was young. So I was going to put the quarterly financial report on the wall in the church. So I put it on the wall and I said to the folks, if you want to know about the finances, go look at the report. And one of the fellows called me on the phone and he said to me, I think you need to make copies and pass it out. All right, now I'm going to vote on this right now. How many think that my idea was the best idea? Raise your hand and leave it up for a minute. My idea was the best idea. Oh, wow. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you. Lawrence and I. Yeah. How many of you think that his idea was a better idea? Pass it out to everybody. Raise your hand. All right, thank you. How many of you never vote in church? Raise your hand. Yeah. Right. And you know, the guy left the church over that. And I was thinking about him the other day, and I wish I could, I wish I had his phone number. Because you know what I would do? If I had his phone number, I, and I probably will get it, I'd call him and I'd say, Jim, you, you were right. That was dumb. I, I should have just, you know, I, I should have just passed a copy of the financial report out to anybody who wants to give any money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just pass it out. I look back and I think, boy, was I dumb. That was a dumb thing to have a broken relationship over. And I really wish I had that to do over again. But if you're like I am, you have some do-overs, right? Stuff that you fought about, that you fussed about, that it wasn't a matter of right and wrong. It wasn't a matter of biblical writ. It was just like your preference or your opinion or your idea. I want to talk to you here a little bit if you have a heart for God, and I know that many of you, if not all of you, really do. If you have a heart for God, you are grieved over the sin that is in the world. And there is so very much of it. Genuine saints, our holy ones, are grieved by sin. That's the very nature of a saint, a holy one, is to be grieved by sin. 
We're not entertained by sin if we're saints. We're not amused by sin if we're saints. We're not indifferent about sin. We're not apathetic about sin if we're saints. Not if we have the mind of Christ. If we have the mind of Christ, we abhor sin. We hate sin. We dislike sin. We're not neutral about it. And more and more as we grow in the Lord, the more we grow in the Lord, the more we hate sin. The Bible says that we abhor evil. That's a really big, it's a weighty word for hatred. We abhor evil. Like, like Job, as we mature in the Lord, it said of Job, he feared God and he eschewed or turned away from evil. That would be the way people are. If, they, if they're growing in the Lord, if they're saints, they grow more and more of a hatred and an abhorrence for sin. Now, so it was, the Bible says about Noah, that he was perfect in his generation and he walked with God. The Bible says about Abraham, you want to have a walk that's blameless before God. And that's what the Bible says about Abraham. Even unbelievers looked at Daniel's life and they knew there was something holy about him. And they said, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. They didn't even have monotheism figured out, but they realized there was something holy, deeply holy about Daniel's life. And that's the way it is for you, too. If you know God and if you love God, the more that you know God, the more that you love God, the more that you hate sin, the more fear you have for God, the more hatred you have for sin. You hate and abhor sin. Proverbs 16 and verse six states that as we fear God, we depart from evil. Fear God and depart from evil. More and more, as we walk with the Lord, we're characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, like Galatians 5 says, and not by the works of the flesh, right? More and more, as you know the Lord, you're characterized by the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. The longer that we know the Lord, the more that we develop a distaste for sin and we get an appetite for holiness. And there's so much sin to hate, all around us, am I right? More and more, our nation, America, that we love is turning towards sin and turning away from God. Who can deny that? Legally, covenantally, publicly, this once great nation of America, this once great and godly nation of America is turning towards sin and embracing sin and defending sin and turning away from God. Now to get elected to a public office in our nation, you have to embrace the sin the Bible condemns in order for you to get elected to public office in many cases, not in all, but in many cases. And so we live in this nation that's turning away from God, that's toward, turning towards sin, that's marginalizing Christians, soon, soon will be pressuring Christians, soon thereafter be probably persecuting Christians, rejecting God's law, and pushing God to the margins of the culture and Christians to the margin of the culture. So everywhere we look, we have this problem with the sin that's just crushing. It's coming in like a wave and it's crushing us. And Ezekiel's prophecy to Judah, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 9 and verse 4, he sees a vision. Do you remember this? In, the, in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4, what is in the vision? Do you remember? It was... Um, a man that was dressed in white linen in this vision. And what does he have? He has an inkwell on his side. And what has he been told to do? He's been told to go through the city of Jerusalem, also known as the holy city, 
and to put a mark on the foreheads of those who do not, who, those who, who grieve and sigh and grieve and mourn over the abominations that are happening in the holy city of Jerusalem. Are you following me? So, so he says, here's what I want you to do. I, the, you in the white linen with the, with, the, with the inkwell, go and put a mark on the head of everyone who sighs and who grieves over sin in my holy city. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. If such a man was walking up and down the roads of our church today, would he stop by you and would he make a mark on your head as one of those people who sighs and who grieves over sin in, in our nation? And what does the Bible say? It says that those that don't have this mark in Ezekiel's prophecy then would suffer the judgment of God in a very frightening way. We won't tell that story. That's not our text today. It's just an illustration I wanted to begin with. Do we grieve over sin? And the answer is this. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, then things that are unholy grieve you. And that's all there is to it. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you cannot but grieve over sin in our nation. But listen... All the sin isn't out there. Peter said what? Judgment must begin in the house of the Lord. If you look around and you see sin in the nation, then you want to look within and see the sin in the church and there's sin in the church too. And if there's sin in the church, that means that there's sin in the families of the church. And if there's sin in the families of the church, that means there's sin in your hearts and there's sin in my heart. And it's really there that we want to begin. What do we do when we notice that there is this crushing burden of sin in our culture? This tidal wave of iniquity that's in our culture. And we're older and we have children and we have grandchildren. And we think, what is it going to be like for them in this nation as this nation is turned away from God and towards sin? What's going to happen to them? How are they going to be strengthened with might by his power in the inner person during this time? What's going to happen to them? And what we tend to do is we have a tendency to say we need to build higher walls to protect the people that we love from the sin that's threatening them. And we have a tendency to build the walls higher than God does to take the laws of God and then add to the laws of God things that we think are helpful because we see this tidal wave of sin coming to us. But the Bible teaches that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. What in the world, what in heaven and earth can be more powerful than God living in you and imparting to you the divine nature? Do we build a higher wall or or do we yield to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? We have the word of the living God. Quick and powerful and sharp sharp enough to divide soul and spirit. If the soul and spirit can be divided. What could be more powerful than we have the word of the living God. To withstand the tidal wave of sin that's in our culture. The sin that's in our family. The sin that's in our church. The sin that's in our family. The sin that our own sin. We have the church of the living God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. The church of the living God is the assembled saints filled with the Holy Spirit carrying their Bibles. 
Folks, we have what we need if we yield to the Holy Spirit. And if we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we have all the powerful wherewithal that we need to withstand even in an evil age. And it will not do us good to build walls that are higher than God's walls, coming up with adding our personal man-made restrictions to God's stated restrictions. To do so is actually a form of sin. Amen. To do so is actually a form of sin. To do so is to violate the scripture. Obviously, you are quiet at the wrong time. So now I'm going to preach a half hour more. Don't ever do that again. No, I'm just kidding. You're quiet at the wrong time, so I'm going to point you to a passage of Scripture. This is not a time for the church to grow soft on sin. This is not a time for the church to become silent about sin. That is certainly not what I'm saying. We're headed here toward Romans chapter 14, and we want to make that work because my little clicker is not making it work. So you can bring that. Thank you. And we're going to talk about having it your way. Personal preferences. Under the mercy. This is not a time for the church to grow soft on sin. It's not a time for us to stop talking about sin. It's not a time for us not to boldly declare the law of God. It's not that time. It's a time when we need to realize that sin, though, takes subtle forms of self-righteousness and legalism is a form of sin, a form of worldliness. We're going to talk about that. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. What it says is that Adding to the Bible, adding to God's word, though we, because we're, in other words, we, we do this when we fear that sin is crushing in and we've got to do something about it. And we tend to take a hold of the wrong tools and, and instead go beyond the scriptures and erect like higher walls in the scripture, thinking that we're going to be safe. Get it? And that's what they did, and, and this is what Paul is writing about in the Colossian letter, along with other things. He's writing about this, and he says this in Colossians 2, 20 and 23. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the evil powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? So you get that? The rules of the world. This is a form of worldliness he's going to talk about. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world as don't handle don't eat, don't touch. That's interesting, isn't it? Do you get what he's saying? You know, we, if, if, I, if a pastor comes and he says, don't get drunken, you're like, thank you, pastor, preach it. That's right. But of course, that's true. If a pastor comes and he says, don't commit fornication or adultery, you're going to say, that's what the word says. Preach it. Don't do those things. These things are wrong, you know. And, those, and, and you might say, those are worldly things. But if somebody comes along and then they add a, a restriction to what the Bible gives, what is that called? Here it's called worldliness. It's a form of worldliness. It's a kind of sin. Okay? So we've got to remember that there, it's like we're on a road here and there's a cliff of licentiousness on one side. That we can go over the cliff of licentious behavior. That's that drunkenness and immorality and, and greed and that. But there's a cliff on the other side. And that's the cliff kind of like parading your false righteousness. It's self-righteousness. It's legalism. It's going beyond the scripture. That's a cliff, a dangerous cliff too. And Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians that one can crash on either side of this cliff. And so he says, you've died with Christ. He set you free from from the evil powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world? 
like restrictions such as don't handle, don't eat, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teaching about things that are gone as soon as you use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and humility and severe bodily discipline, but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. That's a passage that we should take in hand. As we approach Romans 14 now, what are we talking about? Well, this is the heart of what Paul's, where, where Paul's going with this whole letter. We're reaching the end of the letter, and there's this matter of end stress, meaning that if we want to find out the meaning of something, we kind of go to the end, and what is he emphasizing in the end? In other words, Paul has said all the other stuff he said, so we can say this. Paul has laid that foundation of doctrine of sin and salvation and sanctification and sovereignty and service so that he can say this. This may be the most important piece of application that he's going to give. And what is he driving toward here? And we're going to get into Romans 14. We're going to see that there are kind of two distinct groups in the Roman church or the Roman church's assemblies. And one of them is Jewish converts and the other are Gentile converts. Greek or Gentile converts. Now, and you'll see immediately there's like two issues that surface in Romans 14, and they are eating meat offered to idols, which is not a big deal today, but it was then a really big deal in the church, and that had to do with Jewish and Gentile people. The Gentile people had no problem eating meat offered to idols. The Jewish people, they would choke on that, some of them. And then the other issue was ceremonial feast day or ceremonial days, Old Testament uh, ceremonial law which was done away in Christ, and yet some of the Jewish people are still observing some Jewish ceremonial days, and they're given freedom to do that, but not to force that on other people. So we're talking about two different things in the church that are named that are really personal preferences, and how to deal with personal preferences. Does anybody here think it's ironic that the Bible is just so powerfully applicable to our time? This is what our church needs to talk about right now. This is what our church needs to talk about right now. We need to talk about the place of personal preferences in the program of God and how to live holy lives in an evil age. This is on the heart of every member of Evangel. I listen to you. I hear you. I hear what you say to me, and I hear what you say about me, and I hear what you say to other people. Because, you know, a little birdie tells me, and the people of Evangel are burdened about the sinful world that we live in, They should be burdened about the sin in the church, the sin in their family, and their own sin in their own heart. And and what are we going to do about this sin? And and do we we put in place man-made regulations in order to make sure that we're not crushed by the tidal wave of sin? And Paul's going to speak directly to that. And so you have this tension in the family of God over personal preferences, and they're often rooted in fear or a lack of confidence in the Spirit, the Scriptures, and the Gospel. And this is what Paul's taking aim at in Romans 15, or 14. And we're going to get there in a minute, but before we do, just to, to further set this up, I want you to take your Bible and look in another epistle of Paul, and that is Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. And, and I want you to notice, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for... And what I'm going to demonstrate with this is this. It's easy for us to assume that the spiritual person is the one with the most restrictions, right? The spiritual person is the one with the most restrictions, the most rules. He's the one, she's the one that has the higher standards, right? The person that's spiritual is the one with the higher standards. It sounds right. 
It sounds altogether right. Let's just see, though, when we read Paul, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if he says that you measure spirituality by the number of standards that a person has, or is there another method of measurement of spirituality here? Now, this is uh, from Galatians 5. Let's go from 16 to 26. And just hear the word of the Lord. I say, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And this is Galatians, written to counter the teaching of Jewish Judaizers, right? Legalists. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How many of you needed to hear this today? Anybody out there wrestling with the lust of the flesh? Can I get a witness on this? Now, thank you. I'm with you. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. You cannot do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. (laughs) We see them, right? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Those are, so far we've listed the out there sins. Those bad people out there. But Paul is going to do something can I say it this way? Kind of tricky. And he's also going to drop into the conversation some in here sins. Right? The kind of like, you know, he's going to say, along with adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness, idolatry and sorcery, he's going to drop in hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions and dissensions and divisions and heresies. That's in here stuff. Right? You ever see that in church? Of course you do. You ever see that in your house? Of course you do. You ever have that in your heart? Of course you do. And they're the works of the flesh. Just like adultery and fornication. And I know that you like it when I pick on adulterers and fornicators. If, you're, if you don't happen to be committing adultery and fornication right now, then you want me to preach about those because it, it's easier to digest your roast beef on Sunday afternoon. But it's not my job to help you digest your roast beef on Sunday afternoon. It's my job to step on your toes and to get you to think about your own heart and mine and, and the, the, the sins that we wrestle with and that we struggle with along with those things. And then he goes on and says, and envy and murders and drunkenness and revelries and the like, which I've told you beforehand, just as I've told you in t- time past, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you want to measure a spiritual life, you're going to have this in verse 22. What is the measure of a spiritual life? Is it that I have a higher wall than anybody else? Is it that I've added rules to God's rules? Or is it something more dynamic? Of course it is. This is what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So he's saying to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the way you can tell a spiritual person is not how many restrictions that they have, how many prohibitions that they have, how high their standards are, though their standards should be every bit as high as God's, perfection, but by whether the fruit of the Spirit is evident in their life. Church, this is what we want. A church full of people who are characterized by love. A church full of people that are characterized by joy. A church full of people that are characterized by peace and patience and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
those people, not the ones that are, you know, like kind of advertising themselves as righteous, but the ones who graciously, lovingly, joyfully exhibit the spirit, spiritual gifts. Those are the spiritual ones. That's what spirituality looks like. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit and not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Does it sound like Paul has a handle on how to resist the Spirit of the age? Yes, he does. We need nothing more. We don't need to add to this. It's like, add to the Holy Spirit? Add to the indwelling Spirit? Add to the power of the living church? Add to the power of the gospel, power of God unto salvation to whoever believes. Improve on the gospel. Improve on the Bible. Improve on the law of God. It can't be done. Now that's what Paul's saying. You just heard the world's longest sermon introduction known to mankind. You were here. You can get a t-shirt that says, I survived the world's longest sermon introduction. You can tell I'm not repentant about that at all. I want to say those things to you. I felt like, church, that's what we need to hear. Now, this is a good time to remember that our mission is to love God and love one another and love the lost. We need motivation to work together to seek creative solutions to issues that come up in our lives. This happens in our homes, and, and it certainly happens in the church, and it happened in the Roman church because you had the Jewish people that were originally a part of the Roman church, and then they were probably expelled for a while, and then the church took on a very Gentile, very uh, former pagan kind of feel, and then the Jewish people came back. And so you have this very natural kind of tension that's in the church, a natural tension where people uh, tend, like we all do, to elevate their personal preference, and we want everybody else to do things my way. Right? You've heard the phrase, my way or the highway, right? Have you ever heard that? I have too. Everybody feels that way. They say, I want things my way. And what God is going to say, and it's in in Romans 14 when we study there someday, next week or whenever we do that. In Romans 14, as we study there, what we're going to see is that God has the solution for that. And it isn't my way. And it isn't your way either. It's his way. And so when I insist on my way then it can't be his way. And we're going to see that very clearly, actually in six different things. In Romans chapter 14 through chapter 15 and verse 7, we're going to see six different things. Let me just tell you what they are to whet your appetite and then make some concluding remarks. First of all, before you insist on your way, Romans 14 is going to say, consider who God is. Before you insist on your way, Romans 14 is going to say, consider who God is. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do is I'll take over here if I can. And I'll just show you a slide. Let me just advance. Can we do that? Or just go ahead and advance all the slides to the very last slide that's going to show the entire outline. And that's it. Can you see that? Can you read that? It's like, no. This is where we're going to go. But let me just summarize this today because I think it will be useful for us here today to kind of see this is as you study Romans 14 and 15 this week. And I hope you will. And you read it. Tell me if you don't see that this is a good, accurate representation of the material that is here. Is it, Paul is saying here in Romans 14, receive one who is weak in the faith, not to disputes over doubtful things or opinions. And we're not talking about disputes over the word of God. We're to earnestly contend for that, right? If somebody comes up here and says, well, it's not my opinion, the virgin birth, or, or if a man can submit to a man, I'm going to earnestly contend over that, Right? 
If you say, well, you know, marriage is between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, then we're going to earnestly contend over that because the Bible forbids that. It's like, we're not going to be unkind and hateful to people. We're going to earnestly contend over that. Am I right? Yeah. Or, or, or the virgin birth of the, of the Bible. Anything the Bible teaches, we, we're willing to earnestly contend. But when it comes to personal opinions, when it comes to personal preferences, Paul is saying this, receive people. Don't reject those people because their opinions are different than yours in extra-biblical things. This is a big deal in the early church, and it is a big deal at Evangel. It's important. And so he's gonna, that's the basic thing that he's going to say. And then he's really going to give six different things. He's going to say in verses 1 through 12, because of who God is, we're going to study who God is, and, who, and then it, we're going we're gonna, to uh, set aside personal preferences and not demand our personal preferences because of who our brother and our sister is. And that's going to be in the next little section. Because of our witness. Because we want to protect our witness. Because of the work of God. Because the work of God is important. Because of our own conscience. And our own consciousness. That we're going to talk about all these things as we study through this. And really then, he uses the greatest argument of all. The example of Jesus Christ. And we're going to study all that. We're going to see those things. I had uh, occasion to get my tires changed, or bought, bought some new tires, years ago in a town where I pastored. And I remember that I, I went in, and we were going to have a friend day. We're going to have one here, Lord willing. But we're going to have a friend day. We're going to invite, everybody's going to invite a friend. It's, like, it's kind of cool, like doubles the group in one Sunday. And we're going to have this friend day. And so I was looking for a friend, and I just don't have many friends. So I was talking to him and said, can you be my friend? And he says, explain what's involved. And I'm like, it's easy. I'm going to invite you to church. You're going to come be my friend. He goes, tell me the church. I go, okay. And I told him, he goes, oh, I know about that church. He goes, I got to tell you this. You got a, you got a tough job out there. I go, why did you say that? He goes, because I've known those people for a long time. And they just can't get along over there. That's what he said. I've known those people for a long time. And they just can't get along over there. Which should never be said about a group of brothers and sisters who love the Lord. Right? They said that. I will tell you this to to your credit and to the credit of the leaders before me. Is that I often talk about you out there. I often talk about you out there. And I often get a good report. People that say, I know those people. I know that church. This church has maintained a unity, has moved forward around the gospel. And I would call you to that. That's what Paul is calling the people to. As we talk about this, we're going to see how do we root ourselves in Christ, move together in a oneness of mind, in unbroken agreement and unity over the things of the Lord without compromising in this present evil age. But listen, folks, it's important. I was in the parsonage once a number of years ago. And we had a guest in the, in the parsonage that day. She was, uh, was my, my sister-in-law, Linda. And I was doing what I normally do, just in the house and taking phone calls. And, and somebody from the church called with, with some, it, it happened to be not a really heavy-duty thing. It was more of a petty, kind of a preferential thing. And, and because you're the pastor, sometimes you get to be the uh, one that that stuff goes to. So I'm on the phone with this person, and they're, kind of telling me their view on this matter of a personal preference. I don't even remember what it was. And I was doing what I do, trying to get everybody to get along and settle down. And uh, like one of our sisters here said, sit down in the boat. You know, just please, let's just get along because we got an important thing to do here. You know, and that's what I was doing because that's what pa- one of the things pastors do. 
And when I got done, it didn't try me. It wasn't difficult. It was just a matter of course. What I do, it's one of the things that I do. (laughs) I hung up the phone and my sister-in-law goes, how in the world, how in the world do you tolerate that? And I go, what do you mean? You know, that. You get phone calls from people and they all tell you their opinions and then you got to decide how do you tolerate that? And it took me aback because I'm a third generation pastor and it's just one of the things you do is you help people get along and you try to be a peacemaker and that's what you do. I didn't think it was all that unusual, but I've thought about that question for many years. And I want to give you an answer to that question before we close today in the form of a story that gets really close to my heart. And I hope that the story will find its way into your heart and maybe change the way you think about insisting on personal preferences. How can I move forward in ministry without getting discouraged about people elevating their personal preferences? I want to tell you the story of a little girl. Her mom and dad are troubled. They're very, very troubled. Her daddy doesn't know the Lord. Their marriage is having trouble. Her mom, she has some serious problems. The kind of life-altering problems that could one day completely upend this family. And then there's this couple, they, they, the same couple. They got together years ago. They didn't think they'd ever be able to have children, but they did. God gave them a little girl. And they named her Faith. They named her Faith. That's her name. And then later, God gave him a little boy. Now, Faith is an unusual girl. Her mom is troubled and just doesn't get to church much. She knows she ought to go. She's got a tender heart. But she's got some hard things going on in her life. And like so many people, she just doesn't get there almost ever. But Faith always wants to go to church. And Faith goes into her mommy sometimes, often. And she says, Mommy, can you please take me to church? I want to go to church. We need to go to church. And mom tries, I'll try, and she doesn't. She makes promises that she's unable to keep. And then I heard this little story that Faith found at a garage sale, I think, or somewhere. She found this candle. It was like a big candle with a picture of Jesus on it. She wanted that candle. So Faith bought that candle. She took it home, and she put it in her room. And at nighttime... She goes in her room and she closes her door. She goes over and she lights that candle with Jesus on it. She kneels down and she prays for her family. Now here's how I can do what I do. And I can boldly call you to join me. There are little girls like Faith that live all around this church. There are people that are broken and hurting and needy. And they need our Jesus. And they live all around this church. We could fill this building with them over and over and over again if we decide to go reach them. And they don't even know what they're praying for, some of them. And I will boldly say to the church of Jesus Christ, I know you're worried about sin and you want to build a big wall. I've been there myself. But I'm just telling you, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the word of the living God. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the church The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We don't need to be afraid and descend into another kind of sin. What we really need to do is gather together, decide that we agree that we're going to go tell this lost and dying world
world of the Jesus Christ who can set them free and give them an eternity in heaven. Do you agree? Amen. Let's sing.